Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from On the Architectural History of Chester Cathedral, published in 1864, and this story looks at, you guessed it, the architectural history of Chester Cathedral. As Australia is a relatively new country, I'm always so envious of the historical architecture that other countries have. We do have koalas though, so I shouldn't complain. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you, Gina Burney, for your thank you message through Patreon, and of course, for supporting the podcast. Thank you to Joanna Holding for your lovely message through the website. Food stories would keep me up too, so I don't blame you for switching over. And finally... A massive thank you to Wasa Maloney, a.k.a. Eggy Eggson from Germany, for your lovely message through Instagram. I am grateful for you sharing the podcast with others who need it. As always, I am extremely appreciative of all the patron supporters and anchor sponsors who continue to support the show financially with a monthly contribution Whether it is $5 or $1, your monthly contribution allows me to bring more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. If you find the podcast beneficial, please share the podcast with a friend who may need a good night's rest. And of course, subscribe. It would also be amazing if you had the time to leave a review or rating in iTunes or Spotify. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. On the Architectural History of Chester Cathedral by Thomas Rickman With an introductory memoir by the Reverend Canon Blomfield. The MS of the following report by Thomas Rickman on the architectural features of Chester Cathedral has been for many years in possession of a gentleman in Chester, but has never appeared in print. It is supposed to have been drawn up at the request of Dean Cholomini, who was one of Rickman's early patrons, and the date of it may be fixed at about 1812. It is therefore probably the earliest specimen of his style 
of architectural analysis, as at the same time it affords a valuable specimen of the accuracy of his observation and the clearness of his discriminative judgment, it is thought right to present it to the public through the medium of the Chester Architectural and Archaeological Society. The name of Thomas Rickman is familiar to every student of Gothic architecture as the author of the clearest and most comprehensive textbook on the subject. He was the first to elucidate the true characteristics of Gothic architecture and reduce them to a simple and intelligible system. The nomenclature which is now universally received was first brought into use by him. For though he adopted the title of Early English from Miller, who had suggested it in 1805, and that of Decorated from Britton, who applied it in his description of Malmesbury Abbey in 1807, yet he was the first person who really gave substance and meaning to those by assigning to each term its proper characteristics. The term perpendicular he himself invented, as describing the features of the later style, thus arranging the whole series of ecclesiastical buildings in the country under the four divisions of Norman, Early English, Decorated and Perpendicular, and accurately defining the special and distinctive features of each. He became, in fact, the founder of the modern science of Gothic architecture, the author of the grammar by which the study of it is still regulated and pursued. Rickman therefore deserves a higher place in the Temple of Fame than he appears at present to occupy. The habit of laborious and patient investigation, the sound and discriminating judgment, the faculty of nice and accurate comparison, which enabled him wholly unaided by the science of labour of others, to work out for himself that simple yet clear and comprehensive system which secured this branch of architectural science from the ignorance and bad taste of preceding centuries and established it on a fixed and certain basis or to place him at the foremost rank of men who have contributed to the advancement of useful knowledge. As the history of his life and labours is but little known, it may be an acceptable introduction to the reading of this report on Chester Cathedral, if we preface it with a short biographical memoir 
Thomas Rickman was born at Maidenhead on the 8th of June, 1776, and was the eldest son of Thomas and Sarah Packman, members of the Society of Friends. His father's profession seems to have combined that of grocer and chemist and druggist, in which latter capacity he gave medical advice to his customers. Eventually, he relinquished all but the medical department and practised as an apothecary in which profession he wished to bring up his eldest son. Circumstances and his son's natural tendencies determined otherwise. It appears that even the strict and unaesthetic notions of his father's sect could not restrain the development of the son's taste for order and beauty of arrangement, which manifested itself in the first instance in a passion for military display. As a boy, he was eager to attend every review and parade which he could possibly reach, and to make himself master of all the details of military evolutions. He employed his leisure moments at home in drawing figures of soldiers, cutting them out of pasteboard and arranging them on tables in an upper room, which he had appropriated to himself. He made several thousands of these pasteboard soldiers, both cavalry and infantry, and disposed them in order of battle, to illustrate some prints which he had procured of celebrated battles. He studied the history of the modern campaigns and knew the services of all the officers in the army list. He could tell the details of the uniform of every regiment, not only of his own country, but of the most of the continental nations, and understood the strength and value of the various instruments of warfare better than those most who used them. It does not appear that this early tendency to military tactics ever led Rickman to take an active part in them, though it may have served to unsettle his views for some time with regard to the choice of a profession. His father removed to Lewes in Sussex in 1797, and Thomas then went to London, first as assistant to Mr Stringer, a chemist in the Strand, and afterwards to Mr. Atkinson, an apothecary in German Street. But disliking the profession or the town, he removed to Saffron Walden and entered into the service of Mes Day and Greer Grocers in that town. From thence he again went to London 
and prepared himself by walking the hospitals to act as his father's assistant at Luz, whither he went in 1801. But he was still unsettled and again repaired to London in 1803 to enter into partnership with a corn factor. While there, he married his cousin, Lucy Rickman. On the death of Mrs. Rickman in 1808, he removed to Liverpool and entered the office of an insurance broker. Here it was that his taste for aesthetic forms and methodical arrangements again overcame his sectarian prejudices and directed his attention to the study of architecture, and especially church architecture. The business of his office, which commenced at ten and closed at four, gave him much leisure. This he employed in making excursions on foot into the country round Liverpool, and examining the details of all the churches which he could reach. He would start very early in the morning, and accomplish a good deal before his office opened, and on Saturday afternoons he would set off on a longer journey to more distant places, and spend the whole of Sunday which had no special claims on his Quaker conscience, in pursuing his favourite researches. This course he pursued with untiring industry for several years, until he had made himself master of all the characteristics of church architecture, which could be found in that part of the kingdom. He afterwards extended his journeys to other counties and examined and took notes of the special features of almost all the churches in the kingdom, making accurate measurements and drawings of all that he thought worthy of notice. In this laborious investigation, he spent not only many years but many thousand pounds, and he thereby accumulated a vast fund of architectural data, on which he founded the system of classification of styles, which is now universally accepted. His maiden sister followed him to Liverpool, and opened business as a confectioner, and those who were conversant with that town some forty years ago may remember her very odd-looking shop-front, the design for which is said to have been taken by Rickman from the Choragic Monument of Thrillassus in Greece. While in Liverpool, he married his second wife, Christiana Horner, sister of Thomas Horner, who passed so much of his time on the top of St. Paul's Cathedral, painting the panorama of London, which was exhibited at the Colosseum in Regent's Park. The first result of Rickman's architectural investigation 
appeared in the shape of an essay in the Liverpool Panorama of Science and Art, bearing the same title under which he afterwards published it in a large form. An attempt to discriminate the styles of architecture in England. This essay on its first appearance in 1817 attracted general attention and brought its author under notice of many influential persons, both in Liverpool and Chester, for whom he furnished designs for monuments and other buildings. The Church of St Mary at Birkenhead was erected from his designs and is one of the earliest efforts of his skill. The transepts now attached to his church formed no part of Rickman's design, but are the work of a later architect. At this time, the parliamentary grant for the building of new churches called forth a host of aspiring Gothic architects Among them, Thomas Rickman appeared and gained the first prize for a design, which was afterwards executed for the St. George's Church at Birmingham. Hitherto, he had not been a professional architect, and having no practical experience in the constructive department of art, He was unable to undertake the exercise of it until he had associated with himself Mr. Henry Hutchinson, a gentleman who supplied this defect. He then entered upon a large field of work and was the popular Gothic architect of the day. Amongst the many churches which he designed and erected in different parts of the kingdom may be mentioned Alton, near Leeds, Hampton Lacey in Warwickshire, St David's, Glasgow, and St Jude's, Liverpool. He also erected the chapel and asylum for the blind at Bristol, and in 1827, the new building of St. John's College, Cambridge, Rosecastle, the palace of the Bishop of Carlisle, was also restored by him. In 1830, Mr. Hutchinson died, and four years after, Rickman took into partnership Mr. R.C. Hussey, a gentleman who is now employing his talents on the restoration of St. John's Church, Chester. In 1835, he married his third wife, Miss Miller, of Edinburgh, by whom he had a son and who survived him. At this time, he had relinquished his connection with the Quakers and attached himself to the sect of the Irvingites, to which he continued to belong until his death, which took place in 1811. 
The characteristics of Thomas Rickman's mind were great intelligence and quickness of perception, considerable powers of method and arrangement, and indefatigable industry in investigation. He was physically strong and active, and capable of enduring great bodily fatigue. He cannot, however, be said to have possessed much imagination or inventive genius. His work on architecture is one that displays rather acuteness of observation and energy of mind than power of conception, and the character of the buildings which he executed indicates the same accuracy of imitation from authentic examples, and the same went of originality and fertility of invention. But after all abatement is made, it must be granted that to Rickman, more than to any other man, is due the great advance which, within the last few years, has been made in the knowledge and appreciation of Gothic architecture in this country. An Archaeological Description of the Cathedral Church of Chester by Thomas Rickman The Metropolitan Cathedrals of Canterbury and York and the Episcopal edifices of most of the English seas have not only been described as beautiful and valuable remains, but many of them have become not undeservedly celebrated over almost every part of the British Empire. Amongst these, however, the Cathedral of Chester has not only been entirely overlooked, but by a late writer in a very popular work, described as a heavy, uninteresting pile, not worth examining. Having examined it with some attention, and finding therein a more complete succession of styles than I recollect to have met in almost any other building, I wish by a few remarks to excite some attention to its beauties. I therefore beg leave to offer a slight sketch of what appears from its present state to have been the order of its construction. From the situation of those remains of the Norman fabric which are still visible, I have little doubt the present church stands pretty nearly on the same foundation as Norman did, for these remains consist of the north wall of the nave, forming the south wall of the cloisters, and of the east wall of the north transept. From the situation of this latter wall, it seems pretty clear that the Norman central tower was of the same size as the present one, and most likely was not taken down till that was built. 
The north wall of the nave contains two doors. The easternmost one deserves particular attention, as it is a good specimen of the mouldings and ornaments of the early Norman. The arches remaining in the east wall of the north transept are evidently those of Triforium, or gallery over the lower arches, and it seems probable that a future examination may discover some part of those lower arches still remaining. The oldest portion of the building is the west wall of the cloisters. The portion of the north wall which reaches to the door, leading to the grammar school, these appear to have been erected in the latter part of the Norman style, when considerable advances had been made towards the lighter mouldings of the succeeding styles. The blank door in the northwest corner of the cloister is singular, from the sort of ornamental feathering attached to a round arch but as the same kind of ornament is used to the openings of the east wall, leading down to the lately opened lower apartments, it is possible that this ornament may have added at a subsequent period to an ancient round-headed door. These lower apartments above spoken of the chapter house, and a part now used as a vestry, the door of which goes out of the north aisle of the choir, are all of a simple yet beautiful description of the early English. The chapter house is particularly valuable, as it remains in its original state and appears never to have been altered. Its vestibule is a composition of singular beauty from the simplicity of its formation, and is, with the arches in front to the cloister, now filled with some wretchedly ill-drawn sashes of the same style. The north wall of the choir I have not been able to examine, but from some singular appearances visible from the city walls, I have for some reason to suppose that it is nearly of the same date with the vestry spoken of above, and that the present windows in the wall were introduced at a subsequent period Next in order of date appear to be some of the walls, buttresses and interior arches, and perhaps some part of the Lady Chapel, but they have been so altered by and intermixed with the reparation of the chapel in the perpendicular style that it requires close inspection to find them out. But so singularly have these reparations been added that I some places 
a part of the English arch, with its peculiar tooth ornament, is framed into forms and forms a part of the arches of those reparations. Towards the conclusion of the early English style, the piers and arches and gallery of the choir appear to have been erected, and though the shafts of the piers appear to be nearly similar, there is a curious difference in the mouldings of the arches on the north and south sides of the choir. At the period when the early English style had in its parts advanced to nearly the beauty of the next style, two small arches with tracery in front, close to the screen to the Lady Chapel, were placed in the aisle of the choir. These are of beautiful workmanship, and nearly resemble arches in the galleries of Westminster Abbey. There are also two arches in the south wall of the choir, flattish and of considerably broader dimensions, and having feathering whose mouldings are very like those of these two arches. From this circumstance, I am led to conclude that this wall also, at least as high as the bottom of the windows, is of the same date, say perhaps 1280 to 1300. From appearances as they now remain, more particularly as there is no trace at present of what the northern-south transept was, I apprehend the situation of the church about the year 1300 to have been this. The nave, north transept and great tower remaining in their original state. The walls of the north aisle of the choir and the whole of the lady chapel together with those of the choir as high as the top of the gallery or triforium, completed so that service could be performed in the Lady Chapel, and perhaps with a temporary roof in the choir itself. After the decorated style was in some considerable degree established, the building appears to have proceeded, and the walls in the choir raised, the clerestory windows bearing evident marks amidst the present barbarous tracery of their having been originally of the early decorated character and of good execution. The upper part of the eastern window still retains what seems to be a portion of its original tracery. At this time also appears to have been inserted the windows of the north and south aisles of the choir. And here again the work appears to have stood still for the next succeeding works are considerably advanced in their execution. The next alteration we have to notice is very considerable 
and very detailed, and appears to have commenced in the reign of Edward III, and perhaps about the middle of it. It is very extensive, including the whole of the wall of the east aisle of the south transept, with the tracery of its windows, the whole of the piers of the south transept, and of the nave with the arches resting on them, except the four great piers of the centre tower, the walls, buttresses and battlements of both aisles and the south transept, and the south aisle of the nave, if not completed, were so far finished, that the succeeding architect appears from some obscure remains of pinnacles and still in existence, not to have deviated from the original design. At this period, a stoppage seems to have taken place, probably during the reign of Richard II, for all of the subsequent work is perpendicular, and the new architect seems to have found the tracery of the windows of the west aisle of the south transept, and the south aisle of the nave not prepared. Although the architrave mouldings, which are shafts with beautiful decorated capitals, were carried up to the springing of the arch, and the arch mouldings completed, except Mullion itself, the courses of which are different from those of the arch mouldings. It also appears probable that no design had been made for the great south window, as the wall was carried up very little above its commencement. The workmanship of the decorated architect is peculiarly excellent. The tracery of those windows which he completed is uncommonly rich in design, and delicate in execution, notwithstanding the poor texture of the stone, which has rendered it impossible to make out the mouldings of some of the tablets. Enough remains in parts a little defended from the weather to show the excellence of the exterior workmanship and the capitals of the interior piers are of design which, if they were cleared of their numerous coats of whitewash, would be equal to many in York Minster. And that concludes the readings from this evening's episode. I hope you're feeling drowsy and close to falling asleep. If you're not quite there yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on a new episode to bring to you very soon. Until then, good night.